We're going to be cracking a new study, and so if you've got your Bibles, we'll jump into it. Um, we're going to be in the Old Testament again, and so we're going to do four weeks because there's four chapters in the book of Jonah. So if you need a Bible, just put your hands up. Micah, the best looking man at this church, will bring one to you. I can say that with utmost confidence. Let's see. See if you can open up to Jonah. I'm actually going to look for something that God just brought to my heart that should have been in my notes, but it wasn't. So I'm going to look at John 5.39. Yeah. Book of Jonah. Everyone there? All right. I'm, I'm coming on kind of a little bit of a marathon. I taught last night in Solvang. I taught this morning at the big service, teaching tonight. And so, and I was even kind of like a little sick last night when I got something weird headache with, on the motorcycle I told about it this morning. But so I'm a little fatigued. Um, and then I was all raging on people this morning at church. And so that kind of kind of depleted me a little bit, but it'll be fun. But this is a, this is a, is a cool, uh, it's a cool book and it's a kind of a peculiar first chapter. You'll kind of see it's sort of like it just ends and you're what? And you've got to come back next week. So um, let's pray, and then we will get into the study. We'll do a little bit more worship, and we'll see. I might even end a little early tonight. I don't know. We'll see. No one believes me, but we'll see. All right, so. All right, let's pray. Um, Jesus, just uh, as we're about to take a look at an Old Testament book, um, I just ask that you'd remind us that, that, that the Old Testament testifies of you, um, that, that though we're not going to pretend like every verse is, is somehow a direct parallel, but we do know that the scope of this book is a picture of you, and these are one of the few prophets that you actually name in your ministry. And so I just pray that people would keep their focus on you, not on, on necessarily the, the story that's going to be told, though real in, in its events. Um, I just pray that you would, you would guide my teaching, that you would guide the hearts of those learning, that this would not be a study about a prophet, that this would not be a study about a big fish, that this would not be a study of a, of a wicked town, but that this would be a study that ultimately points to you. And so, um, Jesus, just be glorified. Um, I need a little bit more energy um, to pump through this and then um, and, and get some rest. And so just thank you for those that are here. Pray that you be high and lifted up. Um, and so it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So, hey, the book of Jonah... One of 12 minor prophets. What do I mean when I say a minor prophet? The, the less important one, right? I'm just kidding. Smaller book, right? There's 12 minor prophets and then there's major prophets and they've just written extensively. And the minor prophets, I think, are like one, did you say under 18? I thought it was like one to 14 or something, like in terms of chapters. But this one's just going to be four chapters. So when you hear that, oh, he's a, ma- he's, a, he's a major prophet. It doesn't mean he was like more epic in God's eyes. Like, oh, is he, you know, oh, he's just, Isaiah was a major one. You're just, eh, you know, you're just Jonah, you know, you're a minor one. So it just has, it has nothing to do with the man, has nothing to do with what they went through with their testimony. And so this is one of the 12 minor prophets. And you're going to see it's written primarily in third person. We don't really know who wrote it. We know who it's being written about and we know what the ultimate purpose is, but you can always rest on this. Every book was authored by God. Every book was authored by God. These are entirely historically accurate. The whole Bible is entirely historically accurate. And so though we don't know the author, that's okay. Or we don't know the human that penned it, 
We do know who authored it, and ultimately it was God orchestrating events in the Old Testament to point to Jesus. And, and the verse that God brought to my mind just as I walked up, which I should have had in my notes, but I didn't, was this. Jesus, in John 5.39, says, You search the Scriptures. Now, when he was saying this, what were the only Scriptures they had? The Old Testament. It was the only book that Jesus taught from. The Old Testament. He says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. You need to know that the book of Jonah is about Jesus. The book of Jonah is about Jesus. As I said, it's not primarily about a prophet. It's not primarily about a big fish. It's not primarily about a wicked city. It's not primarily about God's judgment. It's not primarily about their repentance. Though all of those things push forward, it is ultimately, first and foremost, primarily a picture of Jesus. Hundreds of years before he would come. And I said, as I said, Jonah is actually one of four prophets one of four prophets that Jesus, along with Isaiah, Daniel, and Zechariah, that Jesus actually names. He actually names it, obviously, when he speaks about him. It, prophetically, at the time, Jesus speaks that he will go into the grave as Jonah went into the belly of the great fish. And so we all know this. We've probably all, if you've been in church longer than like three hours, at some point you've heard Jonah and the whale, or more accurately, Jonah and the big fish. But you need to know that ultimately that is a picture of Christ going into the grave. Because Jonah's going to be there for how long? It's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. I mean, if he had just been there four, the whole thing gets screwed up. Two, maybe he scrapes out of there early. It's not how God works. He's going to see to it that the prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus. And I've taught on this extensively, but you do need to know, and I can show you. I can show you in every single book of the Old Testament. And if anyone wants, you can come up and ask to me. I'll send you a list of like the book and in like a few words how it, every book of the Old Testament points to Jesus. I thought about doing it tonight, but I decided not to. But I can show you that. How every book. So if you've got that, maybe I'll do it next week. Actually, don't even ask me. Okay, I'll plan on doing it next week. I'm going to do it at some point. I'll show you how the whole Old Testament points to Jesus. Every single book, I'll go through them all. Sound good? But Jonah's is quite obvious. It's not as tough as something like Lamentations or Numbers, right? No one's read Numbers in here. And if you say you have, you're lying, okay? You got three, you got three verses in and you're like, forget this. I'm reading John again, right? <laughs> but Jonah is a picture hundreds of years before Jesus that Jesus would ultimately be the sacrifice, would ultimately be the way by which we're reconciled to God. And so Jonah, as Jesus says, he says, look, the whole Old Testament was coming to me. And so you've got to look at this book as pointing forward to Christ. So you'll just miss it. You'll get caught up in the chaos. You'll get caught up in the shipwreck. You'll get caught up in a big fish. Was he a whale? Was he a big fish? Well, I don't know. Jonah is about Jesus. And again, the author isn't explicitly stated but we know who authored it ultimately, and that's God because he was writing concerning himself because he knew that he would send Jesus. And you need to know at the time of the writing, Israel was, in, was kind of in like a really good place, politically, politically, not spiritually. You notice they sort of always kind of were screwed up that way? You notice like the church is always like sort of screwed up that way? God's people are always sort of, have you noticed that God's people are screwed up? Anyone notice that? You notice that? Okay. 
So we're a little wonky, but this is actually one of the times where things politically, in, in, in a societal sense, were going pretty well for Israel. Under Jeroboam II, they, they were seeing the expanse of their borders that they hadn't seen since Solomon. So Israel's kind of pushing out. They're kind of, they've got stability. They've got some political stuff going on. Spiritually, they're wonky like we all are at all times. But it's going to be curious who Jonah is called to go preach to. It won't be Israel. And so Israel is off in the distance seeing great expansion. And I've got this, that the increased prosperity resulted in a materialistic culture that thrived, that thrived on injustice to the poor and the oppression and the oppressed. But again, he's not going to be called to witness to God's people. And so it's curious. And it says this, we'll just jump right into it. Jonah 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And, and know this, I just want to, real clearly, I just want to put the context of prophecy and the understanding of what prophecy is. This is my definition. I can't show you a place in the Bible where it says the definition of prophecy is. But I would say to you that the definition of prophecy is this. God's word to man pointing to God's word as man. Okay? So God's word coming to man pointing to God's word as man. Or God's word coming through flesh pointing to God's word as flesh. That's Jesus. See what I mean? If prophecy doesn't point to Jesus, it's demonism. If prophecy doesn't point to Jesus, it's demonism. Demons know way more than we do, though they're not God. But if anyone steps up and says, I, as a prophet, stand on the edge of eternity with new word for God, I have something new to say from God that you've never heard before. Jonah stands up and says, I've got a word from God, which they had never heard before. And if it didn't ultimately point to Jesus, it would be demonism. And now Jesus says that the law and the prophets were until me. So I contend with the Mormon church that says they have modern day prophets in that regard. Jesus says the law and the prophets were until me. By the way, just a little teaser. I think in September, Zach and I are doing a series called The True Gospel here on Sunday nights. We're going to take a look at four religions that claim to be Christian and are not. It's going to be awesome. I get Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses. I invite them in every time and they never come back. And then, then <laughs> it's true. I tell my neighbors, send them to 255. Say I'm on the verge of converting if they just need to go seal the deal. Open my door, like we welcome Jehovah's Witnesses, right? I got questions. Come on in, you know. But you need to know that Jesus says so. Any religion that claims to have modern day prophets that offers new word from God, see, you can always test word from God when I'm up here preaching. But when someone says, "Well, after the Bible, then there's new word from me from God for you," Mm-mm. Jesus said, "The law and the prophets were tell me." He absorbed it all. He is the final, the greatest prophet. And so you've got to be careful about that. But prophecy in this time, Jonah, is God's word through flesh pointing always to God's word as flesh. God will always glorify Jesus in prophecy. In prophecy, not man. 
And so it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. So two things, he says, arise and go. And he says, cry out against it. Nineveh is the the capital of the Assyrian Empire. A great city, a magnificent city. Some historians, not all, believe it was the, the biggest city of its kind in the day. It was the biggest city in its day. Nineveh. We're going to read a little bit about Nineveh here in a second out of Nahum. But he says, so, so, so God's will, God's desire for his prophet is to arise, go to a city, and preach repentance. Why, the Lord says, is because their wickedness has come up before me. He says, cry out against their wickedness. Get up and go and cry out for their wickedness. And notice he's not called to prophesy to God's people, which is the case with most of the Old Testament, right? Right? You, th- you think about, I've taught through Hosea before. Anyone read Hosea? Just like an epic, epic love story. Just a prophet called to go marry a prostitute. That was the name of the series, because it makes sense. A prophet and a prostitute. And he'd just go through all these trials as he pursued this prostitute, and she left, and he went after her. Now, what's it pointing to? The prostitution that we are, the prostitutes that we are. That whole series, it was great. Every week I called the whole church prostitutes. It was epic, it's just great. But, but Hosea pursuing the prostitute is Jesus what? Pursuing the prostitute, us, even though we flee. But then he has, after he goes through this massive trial with his wife, what does he do? He turns around and he has to declare what he's learned to Israel. Jonah's not so lucky. So like, hey guys, come here. You guys know me. We've been hanging out our whole lives. Grew up together. Hey, you know, good to see you again. He's not even prophesying to his own people. He's going to a pagan Gentile capital of Nineveh. And it says their wickedness. Their wickedness. Tell you what, we'll go just a little bit further. It says this. It says, but Jonah. Oh no, but, right? But but, hey, you know what? Evangelize to your friends. Okay, but, right? Hey, pray for your enemies. Okay, but. So, but Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, why would he flee? Why would he flee? Possibly two reasons. One, it's a difficult task. As I said, he's not being called to minister to his own people or to declare something prophetically to his own people. It's to a foreign people in a far-off land. It's, it's a Gentile, pagan city, right? For you political people, it's like, it's, it's like Democrats for some of you. For some of you, it's just like Democrats these days. It's like, it's, it's, it's atheists for you. It's Jehovah's Witnesses, it's Mormons, it's, it's people that believe in abortion, it's homosexuals. Just pagan, gentle, oh, but God, seriously? I mean, let me rant and rave about repentance at church. Those are the people that really need to hear it. Sometimes God calls us to go into places entirely foreign. 
at the workplace, seriously, if the opportunity arises and it doesn't get you fired, yeah. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not the guy preaching stand up on your desk and screaming about Jesus all day, because that means all Christians go unemployed in about three days. But when the opportunity arises in a secular workplace, which I work, I start right back tomorrow morning in a secular workplace, yeah. If I had opportunities, you better believe it. Usually in tough times when people are like, dude, what, why are you like calm? Like you kind of have this like peace, like everyone else is freaking out. Do you want to know? Yeah, I want to know. I got a faith. I I serve a God that's in control. It opens up opportunities. He's being called to go into a place that you just wouldn't fathom. That's who I have to preach to? Nineveh? I'm going to get up and go. Now, he could have been fleeing because it was difficult. It's hard to talk to atheists sometimes. Because to be honest, a lot of them are better at discussing the issues than Christians. A lot of them know every supposed contradiction in the Bible, and we haven't studied to show ourselves approved and know how to respond to it. We haven't. And so it's hard to talk to them sometimes. It's hard to talk to homosexuals. Especially if they're friends and you just love them dearly and because then you feel like it just hurts. I feel like it stings. People on the other end of the political spectrum from you need to know I'm unaffiliated. So if you think I'm pushing one way or the other, I'm not. I'm unaffiliated. Republican or Democrat. Neither. I'm not even independent. I'm not green. I'm just unaffiliated. I'll vote. I will absolutely be engaged 100%. You better believe it. But just as a pastor, I just find it easier if I'm just not holding to any label. It's not saying that you need to be by any means. I'm not saying go unaffiliated. But to talk to the people that just just divided down that aisle, I mean, it's crazy in America. It's crazy. I just recently uh, was talking with a friend who was out in D.C. He goes, politicians even, they even, Republicans and Democrats don't even agree on how to travel anymore. Like, what? Yeah, Democrats fly into town and they take the cab company because it's all union. What the heck do the Republicans take? Uber. Free market enterprise. I'm like, you guys are divided on cars now. Holy smokes. They don't want to talk to each other. They want to minister to each other. Find every reason they can to divide amongst each other. There was a nice border around Nineveh. And a prophet like Jonah is like, I'm not going in there. Forget that. Those people are too hard. They're not going to hear me. It wasn't going to be a hard task. Listen to this. Out of Nahum 3, it says, and they're speaking to the city of Nineveh. Check this out. This is cruel language. This is what I love about the Old Testament. It's just gnarly. It says, woe to the bloody city. Right? It's like, hold up, San Francisco. It says, woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. This is Nineveh. It's full of lies, and everyone knows this. That's why he doesn't want to go. Its victim never departs. It's like people in Nineveh are trapped under a veil of evil, wickedness, that God has said it's made its way up to me. It's so bad. Its victim never departs. The noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds creepy. Rattling wheels. I'm like, what is that? Sounds awful. Of galloping horses, of clattering chariots, horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. 
they stumble over the corpses. This is in the Bible? I'm telling you, the Bible's way more interesting than you make it out to be. I was incredibly interested. This city is so wicked. People are walking down the street and they trip over dead people. Oops, sorry, I didn't see that pile there. My bad. This is Nineveh. It's not even that bad in combat zones. We clean people up. Nineveh, they just leave them out. I imagine it didn't smell great. Drunk people stumbling through the streets getting toppled over by dead bodies. It says they were stumbling over corpses in Nineveh because of the multitude of heriotries and the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. Behold, is what the God says. Behold, this is what God says about Nineveh. Behold, I am am against you. Hey, Jonah, go talk to those guys. What? No, you are against them. I'm not going anywhere near those people. God, I've heard what you're going to do to people that don't believe in you. That's their deal, not mine. I can't save them. You can. That's how we get, that's how we try to get ourselves off of evangelism, right? That's where the hardline people are like, I'll never be able to save him anyway, so I'm just going to leave it up to God. He's better at it than me. He He is in charge, but he's also commissioned us to go into those places, in your workplace, with your friends, with your family, and to have those tough conversations about the gospel. And God says, I am against you. Are there, is there any worse set of words to hear from God? Any worse set of words. But did you know that the Bible says that we, even as Christians, are by birth children of what? Wrath. We are by nature children of wrath. It says that we were at one point God's what? Enemies. You have to break for God's current enemies when you understand that you once were God's enemy. You have to. You don't get to play them versus us. It's Jesus and everyone else. Yes, the homosexual community. Yes, the porn-addicted heterosexual community. Yes, the greedy community. Yes, the secular community. Yes, the cult community. I'm working with one of the congregants right now that is getting berated by the Mormon church. They don't want to let him go. He texted me yesterday. He said, they won't leave me alone. I said, have them call me. He said, they don't want to talk to you. I said, I know. That's why you tell them to call me. I even said, look, I'll walk right up to the temple with you. If need be, I'll leave the office. I will go to the Mormon temple and say, no. But here's the thing. At least the Mormons are fighting for their community. I pressed that upon the leaders at the youth camp last night. I took a look at the leaders, said, forget about the students for a second, all the church leaders. Are we fighting like that for our community? Because Mormons are. And we're like, hey, bro, good to see you. Hope you come back. The Mormons are making sure people come back. I'm not talking about it in a controlling way, but are we pursuing people? Both friend and what you consider to be foe? Jonah's told to go pursue someone that God says he's against. 
But you have to hear that with the humility, understanding that God was at, at one point, we were his enemy as well. And there was one solution, and it's by the grace of Jesus Christ that we are no longer clothed in our own wickedness. And so Jonah, he says, I'm against the city, but Jonah, go into that city, cry out. Best case scenario, Jonah gets mocked and ridiculed. Best case scenario, he goes into this town where bodies line the streets. Best case scenario, they laugh at him like he's a drunk and they leave him alone. Worst case scenario, he's killed on the spot. Another guy preaching, are you kidding me? We kill our own here. You come over here, a Jew, saying we need to repent? Please. Not a second thought. They cut him up in between drinks. It's a perverse town. And so quite possibly one of the reasons he flees is because it's really difficult. It is tough. It's hard to discuss things with atheists. It's hard to discuss things with people with whom you disagree on political issues. It's tough to talk with people in business about these things. But when you see that through the lens of Jesus and you see all of us on equal footing, that call becomes a lot sweeter because you want people to come to him. And so Jonah, at this point, arose to flee. Best case, he's mocked. Worst case, he's killed. And perhaps, dare I say, perhaps, I'm going to press on your heart now. Perhaps Jonah didn't want the Assyrians to escape God's judgment. Maybe deep down, you don't want him. You don't want her to escape God's judgment because of what they did to you. Maybe deep down you think, though you would never say it in church, you wouldn't say it to your friends. Maybe deep down you say, they're going to get what they deserve. Though Jesus said to you, you're not going to get what you deserve. So maybe, maybe Jonah didn't want them to repent. Maybe Jonah had so much animosity toward them that he said, you know what? If I just flee long enough, God's going to take care of them anyways. It's just better that that happens. They are a wicked, cruel, disgusting, vile people. Let them have it. Do you have those people in your life? Let them have it, God. Forget that. I'm not going to talk to him about it. Kidding me? He hurt me. She said those things about me. Forget that. Someone else can do it. Let a pastor do it. I'm not going to talk to the atheists. I'm not going to talk to the Mormons. I'm not going to talk to my gay friends. I'm not going to talk to them about this. Because maybe deep down we don't want them to be saved. And he says, let's go to Tarshish. I'm going to go to Tarshish. Now, why Tarshish? At the time, that was believed to be the end of the earth. So far from everything, it was near the edge of the earth. Though had they read Job, the oldest book in the Bible, they would know that the, the globe is a sphere, by the way. It's in modern day Spain, Tarshish. 
but it was believed to be the farthest place. This is, a, this is a lot like, though I don't know if the mileage adds up, it'd be a lot like God calling someone who's in New York, and he's going to say that he's going to go, he's flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, he should have read his Bible, because in Psalm it says, where can I go from your spirit? Oh, where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God sees everything. No wickedness from a Christian or an atheist is hidden from God. But Jonah takes off. He says, I'm going to go to Tarshish. I'm going to get out of the presence of the Lord. I'm scramming. I'm getting out. It says he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. Think of it like this. He's in New York. He heads over to San Francisco and hops a boat to Hong Kong. That's the sort of journey that he's going. And look, look, brave though he may be, because most of you wouldn't drive across that in a car, let alone find a way to do it then. Brave though he may be, his gut was wrong. Sometimes your gut is wrong. But imagine, I'm going to go from New York to San Francisco, then I'm going to get on a boat and go to Hong Kong. I am going to get away from God. I'm going to run. It's too hard to talk to them, Jonah says. Maybe in his heart, he's like, I don't even want them to repent. Let them have it. And so he thinks he's escaping the presence of God. And so he paid the fare. This is still, what is this, verse 3? And so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord. Now, he wasn't a stowaway. He paid. He absolutely had every right to be on this ship. And verse 4 says, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. See, we often think of Jesus calming the sea, right? We love that. Jesus says, we're going to make it. Jesus just taking a nap in the boat. Waves start coming. He's just like, stop it. I'm Jesus. It's okay. A lot of times we don't want to deal with the God that stirs it up. A lot of times we don't want to deal with the God that stirs up the sea, that throws waves at believers. We don't want to believe in that God. We want everything's kumbaya with Jesus. And we forget the wrath of God the Father, which he absorbed on the cross, is every bit, has every right to be aimed at us, though Jesus absorbed it on the cross. And see, what, what you see here is you see God, though, though this may not be wrath per se, But one of the biggest things that people struggle with is God was so mean in the Old Testament. He was always doing these bad things. He's he's like darn near killing Jonah here. In other books, we see him slaughtering people, right? He's killing people. He's a wrathful God. It speaks of his anger in the Bible more than his love. Anyone that refuses to tell you about the wrath of God is betraying you from the pulpit. The Bible speaks of his wrath and his anger and his fury far more than his love. 
So if we teach through the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, the majority of those two topics that we're going to be talking about is how God's angry. But see, you cannot fully understand his love unless you first fully understand his wrath. And you cannot fully appreciate what Jesus did on the cross because then you're like, but I don't get it. Like I've, I've just never had, God just doesn't kill people anymore. He was so angry, and you hear atheists say, he was so angry in the Old Testament. You believe in that God? Then why did he change all of a sudden? Jesus came down. Did God go to counseling or something? Suddenly he's nice. He's not doing anything. Because this is where all of that anger and wrath pointed, and this is where all that anger and that wrath was absorbed. So people are like, it just stopped when Jesus came. Exactly. God doesn't have to be angry with us anymore because he poured it out completely on Jesus. And so again, this may not necessarily be active wrath per se, but when you come across these where God does some radically and seemingly mean things in the Old Testament, you're like, but it just doesn't seem like the God that I know. It's because it was active wrath pointing to the cross so that people would see the wrath of God poured out. But then did it stop? You better believe it because Jesus absorbed it. Now we live under what's known as passive wrath, where it is still being stored up, but guess who's storing it up? Jesus is storing it up. God the Father is satisfied completely. That's why in Revelation it says that Jesus comes to tread the fury and the winepress of the wrath of God because Jesus absorbed it. After the church is taken up, he's the one that gets to put it back out. Does that make sense? And so a lot of times in the Old Testament, you read it again. I know I'm off on a little bit of a tangent, but you see it in the Old Testament. You see it's maybe just like an angry God just throwing this boat around, stuff like that. Why doesn't he need to do that anymore? Because his anger is satisfied in Jesus. And so we love to think of the Jesus that calmed the storm, but how often do we think about the God that stirs it up? But again, that wrath culminates in the most loving act on the cross. And by the way, I heard, I heard a pastor say it like this recently, and I just found out that we're going to have a baby girl, so I love the analogy even more, because he says, one of my favorite pastors, and he says, people always struggle with that, like love and wrath, and I tell them, I said, when, when love expands, so too must wrath. I feel like that doesn't make any sense. As love gets bigger, wrath should get smaller, right? He's like, no. He said, if you would ask me 10 years ago if I could strangle a man to death, I would have said, are you crazy? I'm a pastor. It's mean. I never kill anyone. And then he found out he was having a baby girl. Hey, would you ever strangle a man to death? You better believe it. I'll freaking kill that guy right there. Watch him delete. I'll just, I'll just squeeze the living death. Right? Why? Because he had so much more love now for that child that he was willing to pour out wrath. God has this exponentially growing love for you. And so you better believe that he has exponentially growing wrath to protect you. Exponential wrath that's growing upon those who reject him. And so again, when you, when you see this God of the Old Testament, the tumultuous God of the Old Testament, you need to know that it culminated on the cross. Even his wrath was pointing that Jesus was coming. And it says that the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken up. This is no joke. This is no joke. This is sure death. There's no Coast Guard and helicopters coming if this thing goes down. 
There's no Coast Guard coming. There's no Navy. No one's coming to get you. This is it. This ship breaks. Everyone goes down. Everyone dies. Sometimes, sometimes, your disobedience to what God has you called to puts other people in danger. Sometimes your refusal to preach the gospel, your refusal to discuss Jesus or to simply tell others what he's done for you. That's the simplest way to testify. It's the simplest way to evangelize. You don't have to go out there and say, man, do I need to know predestination and glorification and sanctifying grace? You don't need to know anything but what Jesus has done for you. I was a drug addict and I'm not anymore. Not of my own will, because Jesus came in and said no more. And he helped me stop. I used to be addicted to porn. And then I finally surrendered to him and said, give me regenerating grace, change my heart, Jesus. The Holy Spirit came in and flipped it around. I used to be so mean-spirited. I used, to, I used to just tear women apart. I used to compare myself. I used to be so greedy. I used to be so money-driven. I hated people. And then I met Jesus. A testimony is the simplest way to evangelize. And sometimes our refusal to do that, though you feel protected because no one's going to mock you, sometimes that puts people in danger. Push in to the people you don't want to talk to about this. I challenge you. I challenge you because God is in no business if he's not in the business of surprising the living daylights out of you. At what can happen, at what he can do when you simply allow yourself to be used by him. And so these men are in danger And they start freaking out. It says, then the Mariners, which is clearly the oldest baseball team in history. It says, the Mariners were afraid. And every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea. Suddenly, everyone's religious. Suddenly, everyone's religious. Here's the thing. And then we look at these guys like idiots. Really? You're going to call on your God now? And how often do Christians only call on God when things start getting crazy? How many Christians just call on God when things just start getting crazy? If I only came to my wife when things were bad, what sort of relationship do you think we would have? We are in Jesus. We walk life with Jesus. I mean, how many times did you hear that through our study in in Philippians? We are in Jesus. We are in a relationship with Jesus. Every day, yes. Every day, tell him your frustrations. Tell him your joys. Tell him your, your, your fear. Suddenly, everyone's religious, and yet, and yet, and yet we see that, that Christians a lot of times mirror these guys. Now it's time to reach out to God. I lost my job. You weren't there to thank him when you got it. So suddenly all the sailors are religious and they're throwing their inventory off the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship. Check this guy out. He wants to be like Jesus. He wants to go take a nap. Remember the boat scene, right? 
But Jonah gone, had gone down to the lowest parts of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. What? Fast asleep. Guzik, David Guzik says this, perhaps because the storm outside seemed insignificant to him in comparison to the storm inside. Perhaps because it's just some waves? That's fine. I'm just trying to get away from the guy causing it. I'm just trying to get, but, but here's the thing. It's ironic that while the sailors are engaging with their fake gods, Jonah is not engaging with the true God. And here's what's tragic. Here's what's tragic. That Christians are asleep while there's turmoil all around us. Christians are asleep while turmoil is all around us. We're disengaged. We're disengaged. People are dying spiritually and physically, and we won't even open up our mouths. We won't even give them a testimony. Into that city, God? No. I'm going that way. I'm out of here. I'm out of here. We serve the one true living God. And we're afraid to go into those places with what he's done with us first and foremost. Because again, that's just where it starts. Tell someone what you've done and then just listen to where they are. 95% of ministry, I feel sometimes, outside of preaching, is just listening. Just listening to your friends. Listen to the hurt. Listen to the pain. Listen to the violence that they go through. Listen to the addictions that they go through. It's tragic. Christians are asleep and there's turmoil all around us. And we just want to meet. We want to huddle. We want to break. Say, see you next Sunday. This is where your week begins, people. It's not where it ends. This is the first day of the week to equip you to press into culture the rest of the week and then come back to get fueled again. This is not the end. Sort of everything happened to me this week. Now I come here to feel a little better And then I go back into getting beat up all week. This should propel you into culture. Not just simply be the the, the net that you fall into at the end of the week when the cultures beat you down. Does that make sense? And so we press in. We're not asleep. And I, I love this. So then the captain came to see him and said to him, what do you mean, sleeper? I don't get that, but sailors talk weird. If you've ever met one, he says, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that he may, we may not perish. And they said to one another, verse 7, Come, let us cast lots. Now, casting lots, I did a quick study on this. I'm not going to go into depth. It's kind of weird. People are like, isn't, isn't it like gambling? Isn't it kind of like mysticism? Casting lots was never, we see it throughout the Bible in the Old Testament. It actually was never condemned by God. And then the Holy Spirit came and you don't see it again. But it was a way by which, and I'm not exactly sure how it works, to be honest, but it was a way by which you threw certain sticks or stones or pieces, and there was a spiritual aspect to it, and so it was interpreted. And yeah, you saw it with the crucifixion you know, of Jesus, where the, the, the mangy gar- soldiers are casting lots for the garments, but you also saw them cast lots when they chose the new apostle, Matthias. And that's how he was chosen. And so there's something spiritual at work. These guys have a hint of spirituality in, in them. 
It's coming up Jews or, 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 or they, you know, they might have been pagan, they might have been Greek, they might have been Gentile, but, but there, was a, there was a hint of the spiritual side. But know that that ended with the Holy Spirit, so knock off the Ouija boards and that nonsense, okay? No more of that. But it ended with the Holy Spirit. Now he interprets and, and he steers and makes those decisions in the hearts of the believers. But this casting lots of things, don't, don't, don't push it off as just weird mystic stuff. There, there's, there's, some, there's some underlying spiritual stuff that went on, and clearly God seemed to move in and through that. And so it says this, they cast lots that we may know for who the cause this trouble has come upon you. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. It fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, please tell us. Then they want to interview him. They got to figure out what on earth is causing this. Please tell us. For whose cause is this troubling us upon us? What is your occupation? That's curious. And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Suddenly Jonah fears the Lord. Now, it, it, could have been, it could have been a 50-50 proclamation, or it could have been that he in this moment, he in this moment was repenting of his decision. That he was declaring that, that truly, I do fear God. I know who's causing the storm. I know who called me to talk and I disobeyed. And so I fear the Lord. It's, very, it's quite possible that his heart was changing right at that moment. And he said, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And you need to know this is a healthy fear. Some of you hear fear and you think of abuse in your past. You think of a bad boyfriend. You think of a bad girlfriend. You think of a bad parent. You think of a bad uncle. The Bible says the, the, the beginning of wisdom is a fear of the Lord. It's a healthy fear. Look, you can see my boys, when they come in here, if I say, Ethan! He stops and he looks. And a lot of times I do that on purpose in a very stern voice. And then I say, come here. He comes up, what day? I love you. Because I never want him to associate dad being stern always means punishment. Boy, stop. What? I love you guys. (gasps) And you can see him just... But I want them to know that that, that, that initial reaction, that, that is a true, pure, childlike faith that still fears what dad can do. And God calls on us. I don't know who you need to be witnessing to, but when I say there's people in your lives that you need to witness to, the Holy Spirit brings them up in your head. I just rely on him for that. That person at work, that girl at school, that guy from your past. And so that fear is healthy. Would you say that you fear the God that created the heavens and the earth? That when he calls your name through preached grace, through witnessing, through elders, through discipleship, through pastors, does it grip you like a good dad that called your name and causes you to stop? Is that a part of your walk? When God grips you, do you stop or do you run? Because in this moment, I do believe that Jonah's heart was turned. He was riveted. He said, I do fear this God. 
And I believe that he's going to put his trust back in what God has called him to. And I'll show you why here in a second. So he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Verse 10, it says, Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that if he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. You didn't think I was going to pronounce it right. And so, and he said to them, pick me up. See, this is where I believe that he has truly repented. And he says, you know what? Just give me to God at this moment. I believe it. It doesn't say that in a text, but I believe it. Who said, I fear the Lord. I believe he was in a repentant state. And now he says, you know what? It's God in the sea. It's God stirring it up. Just throw me into a dependence on him. It could have been out of compassion for the sailors, sure. But, but, but I, I believe that he just said, look, I've been riveted, I've been jolted. I realize I'm wrong. I should talk to them. I should proclaim to them the gospel. I should share my testimony with the people in Nineveh. I repent, give me to God. He says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, these geniuses, nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land. So like, oh, throw me into the sea. In front of, you're his, we're gonna just check. No, here we go, right? And they just get back on. They're gonna chuck God's prophet into the, into the ocean. I gotta imagine these guys are like, no. No, 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 not in front of him. But then they got nowhere. Like we think storms and ships and engines. They're going nowhere. They're getting knocked around. The boat's creaking. It's about to break. So this probably doesn't last very long. They start rowing hard to return, but they could not. For the sea continued to grow more, that word again, against them. Therefore, I wasn't going to try it twice. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, we pray. Now, here's where they, look, they buffer it. Like, this is going down. Let's talk to him first. Look, we pray, oh Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life. And do not charge us with innocent blood for you, oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Many theologians believe that they believed on the spot. I mean, a shipwreck will do it for a lot of people. On verge of a shipwreck will do it for a lot of people. It'll do it for me. I'm a surfer and scuba diver. I love the ocean. But if I'm out there and there's no Coast Guard... In combat, they say there's no atheist in a foxhole. First time you get shot at, you're like, okay, let's talk about the God thing real fast. Come here, Glesney. You nerd with your Bible, come here. What's that all about? Dude, shot at me. Tell me about this guy, okay? I saw that. First time we got blown up in a convoy. We go back. That Sunday, all the guys are like, where, you, where do you go on Sunday mornings? Where do you? You go, we got a chapel? I didn't know that. Got I'll go with you. I'll go hang out just for your sake. I'll chill with you. I'll just go talk to the pastor guys. going down with that, you know? That near-life experience, oh, it's humbling. Oh, it's clear. 
bullet. What? Mortar drops. Well, this could end. This could end. Look, people are in danger. I believe these men repented. They went from fearing the storm to fearing the Lord in that moment. And look, it's easy to look down on Jonah for refusing to do what God called him to do. But how are we doing? How are we doing? It's a peculiar first chapter. Dude just got chucked and it's like, all right, we'll see you guys next week. Right? But how are we doing with that? That first chapter. How are we doing with that first application? Mark 16, 15. And Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Go into the world. So where's the spot that is not included in the world? You find me that, I'll say you don't have to, you don't have to give a testimony. You find that spot in the universe. All the world, everywhere. That doesn't mean you need to go to Japan, but that means you need to start thinking seriously about your friends. You start thinking seriously about your coworkers. You start seriously thinking about your family. Those hard places, those hardened, fortified cities where that just reek of death. God says, go there. We say, yeah, but, but, but uh, maybe that way. It's hard. It's hard. So who has God called you to share the gospel with but refuse? Who's in danger because you're running from God's call to declare what Jesus has done? And look, here's the idea. The model is not Jonah. The model of going into a dark place is not Jonah. Jonah failed and was being course corrected, as we'll see. He'll get there. The model is not Jonah. The point of the book is not Jonah. The point of the book is the fact that God in heaven, in perfection for all of eternity, said, I'll go into that dark place. Jesus is the first, foremost, most perfect, primary missionary of all time. He says, I'm going to leave my culture and go to another because they need to hear the good news. So Jonah is not the one to model after. The fact that God stepped down off his throne, took off his robe, set down his sword, came not into riches, but into rags, came not into glory, but into poverty, came not into affluence, but into servitude. Jesus steps into human history, into the dark place where there are just streets lined with bodies, people dying everywhere, not once, but twice, physical deaths, and spiritual deaths. Jesus says, I will go in and love the unlovable. I will step in on behalf of my church. I will tell people out of love what the truth is. And for those of us here that are Christians, we accepted that. And now our call is to proclaim that. Tomorrow morning, tonight if God sees fit. Here's the scariest prayer you'll ever pray. God, show me who I 
should witness to. 95% of you won't do that tonight. I challenge you. I don't say that out of being negative. Most of us actually don't want to know. We want to sit in church, hear a good sermon, go back into the world, survive another week, come back next week to get a little breath of fresh air, and then go back and be beat up again. The gospel is offensive. It is both offensive to those that don't want to hear it, and it is offensive, which means it goes after people. It's not a defensive message. And by the way, it's not called the good opinion It's called the good news. You need but share the news. You ever read the sports section? It says the Clippers won last night. And you're like, I don't don't agree. Just telling you the news. The Clippers won. The Minnesota Twins lost. My team, which happens all the time. It's simply the news that we declare. That we accepted that good news and now our challenge is to push back out with it and to give it to a world that is dying left and right. Remember, the point of Jonah is not Jonah. The point of Jonah is Jesus. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, I pray for, oh, I pray for something scary. I pray that you give, myself included, because man, that scares me sometimes. To be caught off guard with someone that needs to hear the gospel. And and I just simply pray that, that you would, in a radical way, you know what? Holy Spirit, selfishly, whether the people here want to or not, would you open those doors? But would you just simply in those moments open their hearts to see when it happens? And that we would simply begin by giving our testimony. The Bible says over and over that we're called to be a witness. Just simply be a witness to what Jesus has done. And so would you encourage people in this time of worship, would you set their hearts on you? Would you set their minds on you? Would you stir up in them an affection for what you've done for them so clearly that when they encounter folks that need to hear about you, it just simply begins with a testimony and then you'll take it from there. Holy Spirit, soften the hearts of the folks here, myself included, as I get ready to whip back into a Monday morning in the business world. Would you make us attentive and sensitive to the opportunities that you give us? Would you course correct us? Because we're hiding in the bottom of a ship again. We just want to do church and be on with it. But Jesus, we know that ultimately you came to do the will of the Father. Your will was in line with the will of the Father, though ours strays. And so thank you for being the perfect model. Thank you that we don't model after Jonah, that you don't, no one here models after me, that we don't model after pastors and elders, and deacons, but we model after you because you went before us. So Jesus, we thank you for this book. We're excited for the remaining chapters because they testify of you. Jesus, be glorified now. It's in your name we pray, amen. We've got communion here. And communion is very simply a symbol of what Jesus has done. We were once enemies of God. We created our own island from God. And Jesus says, I'm going to build a bridge. And that bridge was built on the cross. And his body was broken as a perfect, sinless lamb sacrifice. The Old Testament pointing to it the whole time. Every time they slaughtered an animal in the Old Testament, it was a sign that blood must be shed for the remission of sins. And so they beat and broke his body, and then his blood poured out. It was perfect blood. Your blood, my blood, would not do 
And Jesus did not have an earthly father. He was adopted, born of a virgin. That means his bloodline ran from heaven itself. And so we take the bread first to represent the body being broken, and we take the blood to represent the remission of our sins. Let's worship and have communion at your leisure.